0: Passages this morning, verses 31 through 39. Who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning. I am a Pretty much a manuscript preacher, so Mike, if you just want to read this, I think you do a lot better job. (laughs) Uh, I am blessed um, to be in a church with so many gifted people, um, and I never feel adequate uh, when I get up here. I used to do this all the time, um, and I do it so infrequently now. I I always kind of feel a little nervous, a little unprepared, um, but it's okay. God is good, and his word overcomes it. Um, this passage is incredible, um, and I'll, I'll kind of play off what Jay said the last time he preached, even though he didn't really need to say it. Um, if you haven't been here for your first time, or if you've just started coming, um, don't worry. I don't preach very often, so just soak in the passage. Um, just reading this passage alone over and over will, uh, will do a lot for you. Um, it might be the best passage in the entire Bible. Um, So I'm privileged to to be able to preach it, although I would have really loved to have heard Dylan do it. So um, pray for me. I appreciate those uh, who have. I'm going to go ahead and and pray, and we're going to get into this. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God. that you were pleased to save us in spite of us Lord you left unimaginable riches to come and walk this earth and endure persecution abuse torment and ultimately death on a cross. Because you love us. And father I pray that if. If nothing else is communicated this morning. That your love Lord. Would be communicated in truth. and power. That we would grasp Lord the truth that. We can never be separated from it. It's. Really beyond our imagination, Lord, to comprehend the grace that has been shown us, the faithfulness, God, that you have pledged to us as your people, that you've done it, and your word tells us you've done it, and your spirit confirms it, Lord, and so we just pray that this morning you would move among us, that your spirit would open our hearts, that you would Give us understanding, God. Help us to receive the truth as it reads. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I think it's a safe assumption to make that uh, we're all inclined to repeat things that are important to us. Whether they be ideas or beliefs or strong convictions, I think we all tend to do this. Personally, I think of raising our kids and how often Renee and I would repeat things to them that were important to us that we felt should be important to them as well. Things like brush your teeth at least twice a day, preferably three times, definitely before you go to bed. Don't talk with food in your mouth. Don't interrupt people. Stop yelling in the car. Wash your hands before you eat. We repeated those things a lot um, because they were important to us. We knew that our kids probably didn't understand the full ramifications of of not doing those things. And while those things that we repeated have changed a little as they've grown up, we still repeat things to ourselves and to our kids that are important to us. So around 15 to 16 years ago, Renee and I bought a house where we lived for about 13 years. We moved in 2020 and we chose that house for many reasons. But the main thing that appealed to us was that this particular house um, came with a really big yard. And it had a lot of trees in that really big yard. And we liked the idea of our kids having a lot of outdoor space uh, to run around and play. And I liked the idea of having a lot of trees to mow around. (laughs) I didn't know that at the time. Um, I grew up around Tulsa, so I grew up with lots of trees and lakes. And I missed the trees. And then I realized I had to mow around three and a half acres of them, so I didn't miss them quite as much. But it was beautiful. We enjoyed being there. Uh, but one of the things about the place that, that didn't appeal to us is that we lived on a really busy dirt road. Um, so because of this, we would often repeat to our kids, we would tell them, especially when they were younger, not to play in the road. Many people like to drive faster than they should on a dirt road. And the property was located kind of towards the bottom of the hill. So, you, so people couldn't see our property until they started to descend the hill. And by the time they could see it, um, if they were driving too fast, they didn't have time to react. Uh, to get slowed down. Um, So we were concerned that our kids not play in the road because we all know what happens when you try to break on a dirt road when you're going too fast. You don't stop. Um, So it was important to us that our kids understood that under no circumstances should they ever play in the road. We repeated it often. And I can remember one day that our, our family was taking a walk on this same road And we happened to pass a rabbit whose parents apparently did not warn him about playing in the road. (laughs) This poor rabbit had clearly been run over by something really heavy. And I know this because it had been reduced to a one-dimensional object. (laughs) Not to be too graphic, but this thing was literally one with the road. And that was a teaching moment. I remember taking the opportunity to show our kids what can happen to a creature that plays in the road. This was a vivid picture of the danger. This was what a, 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 a what-more-can-I-say moment. And while that image wasn't pleasant, and uh, while Renee may or may not agree, I thought it was good for the kids to see because it drove the point home in a way that our previous warnings just couldn't. And it did. Well, as we come to the end of Romans 8, we find Paul in very vivid terms repeating some very important things. And what he's repeating in these last few verses of chapter 8 is a version of what he said at the beginning of the chapter. Where he said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In fact, much of this chapter relates to that truth. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, I make bold to assert that the great theme theme of chapter 8 is not sanctification. The great theme is the security of the Christian. Charles Hodge agreed. Speaking of Romans 8, he said the whole chapter is a series of arguments most beautifully arranged in support of this one point. So why is it important for Christians to grasp the security we have in Christ? Well, I think it's because the effectiveness of our Christian lives depends on it. Now don't hear me say that your salvation depends on it. A true believer can struggle with doubt, and he or she will still be secure regardless. But do understand that so much that relates to a fruitful, spirit-led Christian life depends on understanding your position in Christ. So let me ask you this, on a scale of zero to ten, how much can you intentionally serve the Lord if His power doesn't reside in you? I would think zero. I would argue that you don't even qualify for the scale without the Spirit's presence in your life. But what about this question? On that same scale of zero to ten, how effective can you be in serving the Lord if you think His power doesn't reside in you? One, two, the ancient wisdom of Solomon can help us here. He said, for as a man thinks, so he is. Church, if you're going to obey the, let me get a drink here. If you're going to obey the Great Commission, you need to get this right. And Paul knew this. He knew how critical it was for his readers to understand this foundational truth. So he repeated it over and over. And over. I mean, how many of you are inclined to do something that you feel completely unqualified to do? And how many Christians do you see serving God effectively while at the same time doubting their status before him? And so just as Renee and I could foresee the terrible possibilities of our, for our kids if they made a habit of playing in the road, so too does the Apostle Paul foresee the potential for God's people to be rendered ineffective if they didn't grasp the implications of their new identity. Particularly their security in Christ. Believer, this is your helmet of salvation. This truth is what protects your head. Your mind. Under the fiercest attack. And just like a hard shot to the head can knock even the strongest man on his back. So too a believer can find himself on his back. If if he allows his mind, his head, to be open to this kind of attack. And so Paul proceeds to paint quite possibly the most vivid picture we have in all of Scripture of the security we have in Christ. And what he says is actually kind of unsettling at face value. What he holds up to them is the very worst case scenario for believers. Kind of like that one-dimensional rabbit. But what he also holds up to them is far greater than these lists of uh, afflictions and adversaries. What he also holds up to them is the faithfulness of God to the church he died for. And nothing compares. Nothing. He's expanding on what he said in verse 18 of this very chapter when he said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So in an attempt to leave no doubt in the minds of his readers regarding their status in Christ, Paul concludes this section of the letter by asking a series of questions whose answers should dispel any doubts whatsoever. He proceeds to paint a very vivid picture So picking back up in verse 31, Paul starts with a rhetorical question. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, if we pause and think about the answer to this question, we know that there are many things that stand opposed to Christ and his kingdom, right? Paul, in making this statement, isn't insinuating that nothing is against those who belong to Christ. If you've been a Christian for two minutes, you know better than that. What he is implying is that nothing that is against us should be feared because of who it is that's for us. And once again, <clears throat> that's just. And once again, we see how everything in our Christian faith that really matters boils down to the who. And Paul is asking us to consider the who. Who is greater than God? And so looking at verse 31, what I think Paul is doing is he's still developing what he said back in verse 15. Where he said, you were not saved so as to fall back into fear. The foundational message I believe Paul is pushing and repeating in verse 31 is this. Child of God, you have nothing to fear. Did you know the phrase fear not is repeated over a hundred times in the Bible? In various forms, it's the most repeated phrase in the Bible. Church, it's pretty clear that God doesn't want us to live in fear. And so to validate Paul's point, I want to read a few scriptures that describe who God is. God is. And therefore, why we shouldn't fear anything else if we belong to him. Just listen to how these scriptures portray God. I think they can help us appreciate Paul's question. I'll start with Isaiah 46, 8-11. This is God speaking here. It says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times things not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east. The man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. How about First Chronicles 29, 11 and 12. Says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Job 9, 3 through 10. If one wished to contend with God, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? Paul's point exactly. He who removes mountains and they know it not when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the ways of the sea, Who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south. Who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Listen to what the psalmist says of God's power in chapter 95 verse 3. He says, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Psalm 96, 4 through 6. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are his sanctuary. That gives something to what Paul's saying. That lays a pretty good foundation, doesn't it? If we know who God is, and then we know that he's for us, we're in pretty good shape. But do we believe it? So let's return to Paul's question. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Paul doesn't drop the mic here, but he most certainly could. I mean, what else needs to be said? And if you're talking about making the argument, the answer is nothing else needs to be said. But this is how our Heavenly Father loves us. He tends to repeat things that are important to him. And this is a big one. And so here at the end of the chapter, we see Paul in some ways taking a page from the story of Elijah at Mount Carmel. He calls out all potential challengers, and none will be found able to undo what God has done for us in Christ. But before he starts in, he again again reminds his readers of the basis for God being for us. Paul says in verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I don't know how to restate that very well in other terms. So I just want you, I want you to imagine something with me. Imagine with me that a very wealthy man showed up on your doorstep one day and he handed you the access codes and the title deed to a multi-million dollar home. And he said, congratulations, it's all yours. And let's just say this home's in the Bahamas. And not only is it yours, but he's arranged a limo to take you to the airport where a private jet will be waiting to, to fly you there. And so let's say you get to this beautiful house in the Bahamas and you walk in and you're a little thirsty for the trip. So you open the cabinet and you see it stocked full of new glasses. Now let me ask, are you going to stop and make a quick call, or I guess a quick snap? Is that what we do now? I don't, I don't know. You contact the man who gave you the home. Are you going to contact him and make sure that those glasses in the cabinet are indeed yours? If you decide to shower later on, are you going to ask permission to use a towel to dry off? If you decide to get some sun, are you going to ask permission to lay on one of the beach chairs? Of course not. That's ludicrous. You've just been given the title deed to a multi-million dollar home. From the very man who owned it. Surely you would know. That if you, if you now own the house. You have full rights. To everything within it. Surely you would know. That if he's already given you this house. That is so much more valuable. Than anything found inside it. Surely you would know. That everything within it. Is yours as well. Church God has given us his son. His most valuable possession. And not only has He given us a son, but He even placed us in the position to receive Him. He arranged for transportation ahead of time. He's done it all because He can, and because He wants to, and because He set His love on us. Of all the things God is able to give us, He gave us His most valued possession: His Son. Believer, what Paul is asking is that if God has given for us his most loved and treasured possession, will he not also give to us out of all his lesser possessions? He most certainly will. And he most certainly has. Listen to what he says in Ephesians 1-3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you're familiar with this passage, you know we can't stop there. Verse 4 goes on to say, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that limo was booked ahead of time, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Skipping down to 11. God has given us a son, and in him is every good thing, and it's all powers. In him we were chosen. In him we were predestined and adopted. In him we've been redeemed and forgiven. In him we have an unfailing inheritance. And in him we are sealed with his Holy Spirit, which is God's guarantee to his people that he will deliver everything he's ever promised. Amen. Just like that house in the Bahamas, surely comes with many, many extras. So being in Christ most certainly comes with a whole host of blessings that are ours forever. Christ is with us, and there's so much attached to that. Church, can we stop asking God to be with us when we pray? You know, I think that's just a habit for many of us, and I I probably still do it too. I know I have. But that's the wrong thing to ask. Ask that you will believe that God is with you. Because we can know that he is. Because he tells us he is. And church, notice here too that we are so much more than just safe in Christ. That's our foundation, no doubt. But we are blessed in him. Because God just hasn't saved us from his wrath he shattered us with his riches because he is now for us. God is now for us. Let that sink in for a minute. That's just an incredible thought. And Paul reminds us that God is for us because Jesus willingly gave himself for us. And by grace through faith in Christ, we are united to him. Never to be separated again. And Paul being Paul wants to remove all doubt surrounding this truth. So he proceeds to elaborate in verse 33. And he starts in the courtroom. After all, there is a legal matter that has to be addressed here. It's not only a legal matter, but it is a legal matter. God is perfectly just. So Paul reminds us why and how we have been declared justified. In verses 33 and 34, Paul says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Chances are good that Paul could have been hearing in his head the words of Isaiah, chapter 50, where he says, He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? So Paul's courtroom argument rests on an empty cross. We are justified because Christ was crucified. You know, I just have to imagine that if God, the great judge of all, has a gavel, surely it's shaped like a cross. Every time a saint is declared not guilty, I can see that cross being slammed down in confirmation. The cross says it all. And what Paul is saying is that because of our justification, we can be assured there will be no condemnation. Because verse 34 says Christ Jesus is the one who died. And who was raised and who is at the right hand of God interceding for us. And don't miss this. It's only because it was Christ Jesus who died. The only man who actually didn't deserve to die died according to plan so that we wouldn't have to experience spiritual death. He was the only acceptable option if we were to be saved from the judgment we deserve. Amen. Jesus was the only man who could do it. The sinless Adam sinned. So a sinless Adam had to die. An eye for an eye. You see the predicament we are in, don't you? Adam, who came directly from God, sinned. He couldn't do it. He could die for his own sin, and he did. And that's what he deserved. But he couldn't die for our sin. That's on us. Sin had corrupted him along with all men who came after him. And the penalty for that sin was and is death, both physically and spiritually. God had to intervene. Sin had completely corrupted the race of man, and we couldn't provide the perfect man to make it right. The only thing we could contribute was more sin, more sinful people. But God could provide it, and he did provide it. He provided that perfect substitute, and then he became that perfect substitute. No one else could do it. And someone might say, well, so what? So Jesus died. Everyone dies. His death does nothing for me. But I would ask that person, is everyone raised? And does just anyone sit at the right hand of God? No. No one holds that position except one. And this is the rub. Most fair-minded people, most objective people who do their homework will admit that Jesus was a real man who walked the earth. But that's where they stop. In their minds, Jesus is just another name on a well-known tombstone. Sure, they'll admit he was a great teacher and maybe even a really important historical figure. But they, they understand him to be dead. But church, by God's grace, we know better. We understand him differently because we know him to be alive. And as we've seen in this chapter, as well as our own experience, his spirit is alive in us. And he's promised to bring us to glory. Verse 34 says that at this very second, he's at the Father's right hand, interceding for his bride, the church. So, we have the Spirit interceding for us in verses 26 and 27. Fixing our prayers on their way up, as Packer would say. Best quote ever. Okay. And then we have Christ Jesus, the risen Son of God, at the right hand of the Father. And he too is interceding for us. Again, just incredible to think about this. The Spirit intercedes on our behalf down here on the ground purifying our prayers before they reach the throne room. And then we have the Son of God Himself praying for us right there in the throne room at the right hand of God the Father. Church, this thing is rigged. We can't lose. Well, I really appreciate what Warren Risby says about Christ's intercession for the saints. He says intercession means that Jesus Christ represents us before the throne of God, and therefore we don't have to represent ourselves. Paul hinted at this ministry of intercession in Romans 5, 9, and 10, where he says we are not only saved by his death, but we are also saved by his life. Hebrews 7.25 says, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Wiersbe goes on to say, Peter sinned against the Lord, but he was forgiven and restored to fellowship because of Jesus' intercession. In Luke 22, verse 31, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Notice Jesus says to Peter, when you have turned, not if you turn. Why does he say it this way? because Peter is his and because he prayed for him and because he is the risen son of God and he always gets what he asks for and what he asks for is always perfectly in step with what God the Father desires in John 6, 37-39 Jesus says all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Church, who can condemn us? No one can. No one. Not even you. In your darkest despair and doubt, not even you. The only one who has the right to condemn is the one who died for you. While you were yet sitting. And will the king of kings and lord of lords undo the very purpose of his own sacrificial death? Of course not. He's promised not to lose a single one of us. Listen to Jesus' own words in John 3.17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the Father's heart towards those who believe. So moving on to verse 35, Paul shifts gears. He moves from the legal argument to the love argument. He asks, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You see, church, Paul wants us to see that Christ isn't just stuck with us because he has to be. Or even because he needs to be. He's stuck with us because he wants to be. He's with us to the end because he loves us. Christ's death and resurrection accomplished many, many things for us. And for all creation for that matter. But make no mistake. His chief motivation and his condescending to us was his love for us. <coughs> his chief disposition towards his children has been and always will be his love. Romans 5.8 says that God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Titus three four and 5 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 54 10 says it well for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Friends, if you believe the gospel, you have nothing to fear. The love of God will never fail you or abandon you. Amen. It will never leave you alone. In the worst times of human weakness, In the darkest night of the soul, in the face of the worst opposition, his love endures. His love will not fail. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Psalm 136.26 says, give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. How long? Forever. Can't get any longer than that. But notice how Paul expands on his own question. Some of the group he's addressing here are those who have suffered severely for Christ's sake. So he lists a few things that they were probably familiar with. He asks in 35D, Shall tribulation separate you from the love of Christ, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, for we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, don't miss this, guys. Paul is not offering security in Christ to those who persist in the flesh. We've already seen that there is no security for those whose minds are set on the flesh. In verse 8 of this very chapter, Paul tells his readers that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. He's not offering security to those who pretend. He's offering security to those who suffer for the glory of Christ. Now, this is where some of us can get a little uncomfortable. I mean, I've grown up an American, just as most of you have. And if you've lived most of your life here, you probably haven't endured a lot of direct persecution for your faith. Some of you, maybe. Times are changing, no doubt. And there are more and more areas of our country that are becoming openly hostile to those who follow Christ. But I guess, if we took a survey, the majority of us in this room haven't experienced, to any significant degree, very many things on this list. If any at all. Does this mean that you don't know Jesus? Does this mean that everything regarding your security in Christ that Paul has explained in this chapter doesn't apply to you? No, it doesn't. However, what it does mean is that it is normal for Christians to experience suffering for the sake of Christ. It is something you should expect over the course of time. And while many of us may not be able to relate to the more extreme cases from this list Paul gives us, If you've been alive in Christ for more than a minute, you have experienced some degree of suffering for your faith, even in the Bible Belt of Oklahoma. Most certainly our suffering doesn't look the same as we see here in this passage, but if you are following Christ, you have suffered loss. Maybe you've suffered socially. Maybe you've suffered in the loss of friends or have become estranged from friends or family because of what you believe. Maybe you've suffered professionally and that you've been skipped over for that promotion. Or maybe you've even lost your job because you won't compromise. And you won't participate in unethical or dishonest practices that benefit the company that employs you. Maybe you've suffered psychologically because of the very things I just mentioned. Or because of other tensions that exist in your life because your chief loyalty is to Christ. At the very least, I can guarantee that you've suffered in your battle with your own flesh. It's a job to keep that zombie dead, Romans 7, and you will suffer in your battle against it. Christian, your faith comes with a cost, and the longer you live in Christ, the more that truth will become apparent. But Paul is exhorting us and saying, do not despair and do not fear because we have true cause for great hope. Just listen to how Paul responds to his own question that lists the worst kinds of suffering we can possibly experience. For Christ's sake, can these things separate us from the love of Christ, he asks? No. He says in verse 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now wait, how is it that we are more than conquerors when these are the kinds of things we can face because of our new identity in Christ? Well, I want to defer to John Stott on this one. I love how he explains it. He says, nevertheless, can pain, misery, and loss separate Christ's people from his love? No, on the contrary, far from alienating us from him in all these things, even while we are enduring them, Paul dares to claim that we are more than conquerors, for we not only bear bear them with fortitude, but triumph over them, and so are winning a most glorious victory through him who loved us. The second reference to Christ's love is significant, and the aorist tense shows us that it alludes to the cross. Paul seems to be saying that since Christ proved his love for us by his sufferings, so our sufferings cannot possibly separate us from it. In the context, these sufferings should be seen as evidence of union with the crucified one, not a cause for doubting his love. Believer, these things, as horrible and even as powerful as they may sound, will never separate us from the love of Christ. And while we may, in the midst of the most painful suffering, be tempted to doubt and wonder if God is really with us, we will endure because God has promised to finish the work he started in us. And it is through the most intense times of suffering that we can experience the most intense waves of spiritual growth. And I believe the reason is because during the hardest times of our lives, we are confronted with our inability to control our circumstances. Our inability to control other people and our complete dependence on our sovereign God. Our weakness in the face of pain and death drives us to the feet of the one who overcame it. And who stands on our behalf at the right hand of God our Father. Church, I have to ask you, is there a better position from which to fight the spiritual battle than from a position of complete dependence on the Lord of Heaven's armies? Is there a better position? Is there a more powerful arsenal in all of the universe than what our Heavenly Father possesses to keep and protect those who are His? This is what Paul means when he says we are more than conquerors. The word Paul actually uses means super conquerors. Super conquerors. No matter what the enemy throws at us, because our God is for us, we just keep winning. And through every battle, we keep getting stronger. And with every hit we take for our faith, it's almost as if a transfer of energy takes place. While the initial impact from the strike might hurt for a time, maybe even a lifetime, if our eyes are fixed on Christ, the energy and endurance we can gain from it is worth the pain. We come out on the other side stronger than ever before. If our eyes are fixed on Christ. And even if one day we take a hit that ends in our physical death, the transaction that will take place at that point is just unfair. We trade physical death for true eternal life with God forever. That's not even fair. I'd say that's a really good deal. Because of the cross, the greatest fear of the human race has become the glorious gateway to an existence with God that we can't even imagine. Even death itself has been super-conquered. And so Paul continues to drive his point even further in the last few verses of chapter 8 where he says, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here we see Paul stepping it up a notch. He moves from a list of more personal threats and afflictions to this list of impersonal, almost transcendent threats. A list that seems even more formidable than the one he just gave, in some ways. And he's asking, can, asking can, can even these things separate us from the love of Christ? And he starts with life and death. Can they separate us? I mean, life in this world can be really hard for believers, as we just heard. And the crisis of death, even the thought of death, can weigh heavy on the mind and the heart. But these things will not break the bond between Christ and his people Paul in his first letter to the Corinthian church even taunts death in in chapter 15 where he quotes the prophet Isaiah. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? As we've already seen, physical death has now become the gateway to the greatest blessing we will ever experience. And even the hardest life, the most difficult sufferings we can face, only means more victory over our enemy in the end. So Paul continues with the next pair of potential challengers. What about angels or rulers? Well, let's start with angels. Now, we should probably assume here that Paul has the angels who rebelled with Satan in mind. I don't foresee any angels who follow God trying to separate his people from him. So what about the fallen angels? Can they separate us from God? Well, let's look at Job chapter 1, starting in verse 6. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Now notice that Satan has to ask God to stretch out his hand. God had clearly protected Job from his enemies to this point. And Job, by the way, was probably the wealthiest man in the world, maybe, at that time. And we know from the scripture that that Satan is the chief of all fallen angels. He's called the prince of the power of the air and the ruler of this present age. And yet, even he has to get permission to do what he wants to do to God's servant. And we don't have time to review the story, but the suffering Job endured for his faith is simply off the rails. I'd encourage you to read it. But we know how the story ends, right? Just in case you don't, here's what it says at the end of the book. And the Lord blessed blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, which was really blessed. Read the entire book and you'll walk away convinced that Job is the poster child of super conquerors. And not because of his own strength, but because of the strength of the one who held him up, even under the most severe attack we can imagine. But moving on, if Satan, the chief of all the fallen angels, has to ask permission to do what he does, then how much more must his cohorts and his minions need to ask permission Just read the story of the demoniac in the country of the Gerasenes. Christ confronts a group of demons who call themselves legion, who had possession of this poor cave-dweller guy. And when the demons see Jesus, they immediately beg him for mercy. They knew something about who they were dealing with. They called him son of the Most High God. And you know, they had him way outnumbered. Yet their immediate reaction was fear and dread. Because in reality, no one and nothing has them outnumbered. Not demons, not angels, not humans, nothing. And how does this story end? Christ sends this distraught group of demons into a bunch of pigs who end up underwater. Interesting. Well, what about rulers? I'm not sure what all Paul has in mind with that term, but I'll point you to the story of Moses as he stands before Pharaoh, Sennacherib and his dominant army as he fails to overtake Hezekiah, Jesus himself standing before Pilate while clearly in complete control, the apostles as they suffered to their death at the hands of their modern day rulers because they refused to renounce the one who died for them. Church, there is no angel, there is no ruler, there is no authority. Above God's authority. And there is no authority that, that can separate us from the love of Christ. None. So moving on on the list, Paul says, Nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. That's pretty comprehensive, wouldn't you say? And while Paul's language is, is probably more rhetorical here, some commentators point out that some of the language he uses refers to, to astrological powers, when he says the word powers, or cosmological powers who many people during that time believed were responsible for their destiny. So what about these so-called mysterious powers? Well, it's hard to tell what Paul has in mind here, so I really don't know. And we need not speculate. I do know, however, that every major civilization that has ever existed has been very interested in the great unknown of space and the cosmos. And there is something else we know that requires no speculation. While we do live in a really, really big universe, And while it is very mysterious, Christ is Lord of it all. Whatever it is that's out there, everything, everywhere, from all ages and all times and all places. Church, he doesn't just rule the race of man. He rules all things everywhere, angels, rulers, powers, all beings, all things, everywhere. He rules everything, everywhere. Colossians 1:15 through 17 says, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Ultimate power. Nothing compares. God is his own category. There's nothing that compares. And he is for us. All things were created through him and for him. And he is for us. Therefore, who can be against us? So who can separate us from the love of Christ? Let's go ahead and finish Paul's list. Not height, not depth, not anything else in all creation. Nothing, he says, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, as we wind it down, I remember years ago, I I went on a short-term mission trip with some guys from Sojourn, and we went to a Bible college in Zambia where the Evans, um, a missionary family that we support. Some of you know them, um, where they were serving at the time. And our main purpose for being there was was to just come alongside them and, and help with some very practical things. So one place where we spent a lot of our time was in the campus shop working with wood, mainly building window frames. Some of the housing units for the students were in bad disrepair and many needed screens for their windows. They basically had open holes in their housing units in Africa. So from the mosquitoes that carried life-threatening diseases and other deadly insects to the occasional black mamba that was soot in undetected, you die in less than 30 minutes if those things bite you. There were very good reasons for us to spend our time helping in that way. But I learned something during our time there that I didn't know. Because we were working with wood, I learned something about wood glue. I learned that wood glue is actually stronger than wood itself. didn't know that. So if you were to take two solid pieces of wood and glue them together, and then if you tried to pull those two pieces of wood apart, you would literally rip apart the wood itself before you would pull the two pieces apart at the seam where they were glued together. That's impressive. That's a really, really strong bond. And you see, church, our bond with Christ is much like that. Once God has saved us and sealed us with his spirit, our bond with Christ is inseparable. The enemy might sink his claws deep into you. Some of you can relate to that statement. He might sink his claws deep into you. And he might summon the greatest powers of hell and help him. And he might pull and tear and grip, even to the point of death if God allows it. And sometimes he does. And while our enemies might be allowed to break everything else in our lives. They won't break us at the seam. Because if you believe the gospel, you've been united with Christ. Never to be separated again. So as we close, I'm going to leave you with one more thought. You know, we've heard this adoption language used in Romans. In verse 23 of this chapter, we see where Paul writes that we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Paul uses this language in Galatians in Ephesians chapter 1, where he says in verse 5 that God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. It's an amazing thought that God, through spiritual adoption, would bring us back into his family as his very sons and daughters. And even though our modern concept of adoption is meaningful, I think, to us in our understanding of who we are in Christ and how it happened. I want you to understand what it meant to Paul's readers in those days. You see, in those days, adoption was seen in a different light, if you were a Roman. According to Roman law, a naturally born baby could be disowned from the family if he or she was displeasing in some way. There was this element of surprise with natural birth, and if that surprise wasn't one that didn't fit your desires and expectations, you didn't have to keep the child. Even as they grew older, you could disown a child under certain circumstances. However, when someone adopted a child back then, it was different. No one adopted a child unless that child was really wanted as a member of the family. And according to Roman law, an adopted child could not be disowned. He or she was permanently added to the family. So Paul, by using this word adoption in his letter to the Romans, was conveying to the church that those whom God brought into his family would never be cast out. God is so efficient. The Roman historian William Ramsey writes this about Roman adoption. He says the Roman Syrian law book where a formerly prevalent Greek law had persisted under the Roman Empire well illustrates this passage of the epistle. It actually lays down the principle that a man can never put away an adopted son and that he cannot put away a real son without good ground. It is remarkable that the adopted son should have a stronger position than the son by birth. Yet so. Listen to some other interesting facts surrounding Roman adoption. In Rome, once the adoption was finalized, the adopted person's past was completely erased. Debts, criminal record, everything. They had a completely new life. Sound familiar? Here's here's another fact I think that, that helps us illustrate. Seven witnesses were required during an adoption process to defend the true sonship of an adopted child if it ever came into question. Church, while seven witnesses is noble, we have so much more than that defending our place in the family. We have Jesus. And he's at the right hand of the Father right now interceding for us. And lastly, in Rome, an adopted son had full rights without restriction to the Father's estate. Never to be taken away. Full rights without restriction. Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Church, when God chose to adopt us, when He chose to restore us to His family, He knew exactly what He was getting. And He knew it before the world as we know it was ever formed. And he was and is fully committed forever. He's promised us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's promised us an immeasurable inheritance. He has promised us a newly restored heaven and earth with an eternal, newly restored body. And most of all, he has promised us himself for all eternity. So fear not, brothers and sisters. There truly is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because nothing, and I mean nothing, can separate you from the love of Christ. Because if God is for you, there is no power of hell and no scheme of man that can ever prevail against you. Let's pray and let's sing.